Well, good morning. Just as Christ is preparing us as disciples for his second coming, before he died, Jesus, at a certain point of his ministry, began to focus more on the disciples closest to him to prepare them for his death. And that's what we find in this passage this morning. And just like us, just like we uh, we do today in our struggles to live the Christian life as disciples of Christ, the disciples that Jesus had gathered around himself, sometimes they get things right, sometimes they get things wrong. Sometimes they succeed in a big way, and sometimes they blow it in a big way. The main theme of this morning's passage is to have a mind for the things of God, as opposed, of course, to having a mind, the things of the flesh or the things of the world. But that's the main theme. Do we have a mind for kingdom things? Do we have a kingdom perspective? How keen are we on kingdom things this morning? The Pharisees are in the gospel of Matthew a lot. The Pharisees don't have a kingdom perspective because their hearts are dark. They have they have uh basically exercise God out of their hearts, if you will. They have kept Jesus at a distance. And because of their unbelief, in essence, though they think they're the people of God, they are pretty clueless when it comes to the things of God. The disciples, on the other hand, they love God. They believe in God. As a matter of fact, we're not going to look at it this morning, but this is the passage or the the, um, chapter in Matthew 16 where Peter, pretty much speaking for all the disciples, makes the great confession of faith and identifies Christ for who he really is. But even though they have a heart for Christ, they are following Christ and they're they're learning to understand him, they still have a ways to go. They don't get it all right. They're not always kingdom minded. And so we'll see some of those struggles this morning as we learn how to set our things Set our minds on the things of God. Just to give you an example, just in this chapter alone, before I read it shortly. This is the chapter again where Jesus, where Peter makes his great confession of faith. And there are a lot of people in that day and age who had drawn their conclusions about who this man Jesus is. Peter had drawn his conclusion as well as the other disciples. And they say, you are the Messiah. You are the son of God. And I can almost see Jesus. Jesus blesses him. And it's almost like he pats him on the back. You got it right. You nailed it. Yes. And then in the same chapter, not long after that, Jesus is not patting Peter on the back. He's looking him in the face and rebuking him and saying, get behind me, Satan. The same person, the same follower. That's how quickly our minds can elevate themselves to focusing on the things of God and yet can come right back to earth and be focused on the things of the flesh. So the things I want to look at this morning in this passage are it's all relating to the kingdom and being kingdom minded. We want to look at signs of the kingdom We want to look at Jesus's teaching on bread of the kingdom and then what I'm going to call never say never in regards to the kingdom. But let's look at this teaching on signs first in the first four verses. Matthew chapter 16. 
And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. I want to just point out a few things that I notice in this passage. The first thing that stands out to me in this passage, and, and we've, we've been noticing this all along, is look who the antagonists are now in the great story of the Bible and the great story of the history of God's unfolding redemption all throughout the Old Testament. Who were the antagonists? But they were the Canaanites. They were the enemies of God, the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Amorites and the Uptites. And then finally, it was uh, the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and then the Greeks. And now it's the Romans. And they they're always fighting against the plan of God. Fighting against the people of God. They're the antagonists, the enemy. And now who is after God the Son? Who is the antagonist now in the story of redemption but God's own people? They, they were ethnically the people of God, but not spiritually. They, they had become empty shells. The form was there, but the life of God was not in them. And so now it is the people of God, or at least the so-called people of God that were supposed to be the chosen ones that believed in him. Now they are actually his the, the biggest in your face enemies that Christ has in establishing his plan. And so whenever they come to Jesus, like they have done in this passage, you, they're, they're up to no good. They only come to defame him. They only question him not to learn anything. They question him to try to trip him up, to catch him in any way they can, to make him look bad so they can remain looking good. And he look how he defines them. You, you could take this little um, this little clip and put it right into the Old Testament because it's how he would identify Old Testament enemies. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation. And imagine that he's talking to the so-called people of God. This is what they had become evil, wickedness spewing out of their hearts, adulterous. They had they had fashioned. They, they were sleeping with the gods that they had fashioned according to their own image. And he calls them whitewashed walls or sepulchers. They're dead inside. They, they're so beautiful. They are, they have on the outside. They have dedicated their lives to gaining the praise and adoration of man by adorning themselves on the outside with works and righteousness. And on the inside, there's death. And as we learn in the parables, what comes out of the heart that you can't get good fruit from a bad tree. So it's all an act. And inside their heart is darkness. Lifelessness and death. And they are now the antagonists in this story. So how does that happen? How does something how do you go from being the people of God, the chosen of God to now being the enemies of God? Well, 
It happens when we fail to guard our hearts. Remember, everything happens here. It's our command center. It's our control center. And scripture is constantly telling us, guard your heart. So in Proverbs 4.23, the NIV version says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Everything the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing now to get Jesus plotting to murder him. It's flowing from right in here. The New Living Translation says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. For something that's going to determine the course of my life, I think I probably should pay close attention to it. And then my ESV says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And so they didn't guard their hearts. And that's what compromise does. Slowly but surely it eats away at us. And slowly but surely, God, we, we no longer see him. And we exchange the truth for a lie. A description that you would think would be reserved for only people of other nations, people of own other religions. Now, we find the people of God defined by them. So they come to Jesus to test him and they demand a sign. And when we studied the Lord's Prayer, we learned that that word testing is the same word um, for temptation. And the only thing that determines the definition for this word is the motive behind it. And we learned that when Satan tempts us, it's always or tests us. It's always for our harm. He never has anything in good in store for us. Every temptation is behind it is the motive to bring us down to pull us away from Christ. But God tests us just like he tests Christ out in the desert. And he tests us for our good. He tests us to strengthen us, to bring the good things out of us, sort of put good things of the spirit into us. But the Pharisees come to test Jesus. They mean this for his harm. They want to find any way they can to call him out. To make him look less than he is. To bring harm to him. And so the text says they demand a sign. And the idea is that they come to Christ and they say we want a sign. We demand a sign. I want something big. Do something so big that there's no way that I can deny it. That I want something huge. I want something apocalyptic. Tremendous sign. So that all of us can put our faith in you. You prove yourself as the person that you say you are. Give us this sign. It sounds fair enough, really, if you think about it. I mean, how many times have we wished? I know in my own life and throughout even my Christian life, I have wished for signs for God. You know, I need some direction, God. I need something really obvious in this situation. Or especially when it comes to witnessing to people that are lost and you love them so much and you say, God, just do something. I mean, just just have the sun stand still for one day, one more time, like you did in the days of Joshua. So this so I can go to this person and say, you are real. He's going to make the sun stand still. Something like that. Something crazy big. But what we have already learned, because this is the second time they've talked about demanding a sign, we've already learned that the problem of unbelief is not the size of the sign that God performs, but it's the size of our heart. 
If our hearts aren't big enough, if our hearts are unbelieving, it doesn't matter how big and grand the sign is. What will happen? We'll explain it away. Have you ever explained the things of God away? Has God ever brought to you signs, obvious things or obvious people? And he brings them right before you. And they are meant to turn your heart to belief. And they are meant to strengthen you in your faith. And you explain them away. So the problem isn't how big God's signs are or how small God's signs are. The problem is always our heart. And so Jesus says, I'm only going to give you one sign. He's already given them other signs, but he says, I'm only going to give you one sign, the sign of Jonah. And of course, we know shortly after this, he is put in the ground. But if we ever struggle with that, let's just be mindful that Christ has already given us signs. He's already performed miracles when he died on the cross, when he willingly overcame the flesh and everything about him says, don't do this. And he gets up on the cross and does it willingly out of love. That's his sign to you. He loves you. And then when he comes out of the tomb, a living person, it's historically documented. It's already happened. It's already true. It's a miracle. He did it for you. What other signs do we need? He's done so many things. There's enough. There's an abundance of evidence and things, reasons to believe in him. It's our hearts. So be mindful of that when we think, you know, I just need a little something more. Sometimes God does. He's gracious. He, he gives us these things. But we cannot demand them from him. We already have more than enough to grow and to love God. And second, I think what Jesus says in this passage as an answer to the Jews demanding a sign is that you can know a lot and know nothing. And he draws their attention to things that they know, their abilities to read things that are going on in the world. And remember, the theme of this passage is setting your mind on the things of God. Are their minds set on the things of God? Do they know the things of God? And so he says, you, in essence, you're pretty good weathermen. You have learned to be able to read the sky fairly accurately, probably more accurately than our weather reporters on TV. You can predict the weather. And there is uh, there, there is worldly wisdom. There's earthly wisdom. It's very useful. It's very helpful. We have to have it. We should learn things about how the world works. It is helpful to be able to read the sky and the times. But the point I think of this passage is that there are things of this world that simply do not transfer into the next there is knowledge in this world that we can have and we can thrive in this world, but it will do us no good in the world to come. And I think that's Jesus's point right here. It's just like it's just like our material wealth. I mean, we can spend our whole lives working very hard, being very worldly wise and accumulating ourselves a great mass of wealth. And does that transfer into the kingdom? What do we take? What do we take up there with us? Just this. We get a new body and then we start from scratch. I don't know what's in there that 
up there that awaits for us exactly in detail, but it's a whole lot better than what's here. But the point is, we can't, it doesn't matter how much we have in savings, it stays back here. That gold watch, all the wedding bands, all the, all the, the thousands of dollars that have been spent on jewelry and all these other things, they stay here. They pass on to the next person that's still alive. You, there's things that don't transfer. And so, obviously, these Jewish rulers were very wise in the ways of the world, and they even were wise in how to manipulate the system, even God's system. They twisted it and they perverted it. They were wise in how to lead people, and of course, Jesus would say, very wise in how to lead people astray. They knew how to read the weather. We might say, uh, what is the saying? And I don't know it by heart, so I got to read it. But some of you guys I know know it. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. So these are helpful things. So this is a warning for us. There, there are a lot of things that we need to know. There are things that we should know about this world. They're very helpful. And you will be held in high esteem in this world. And of course, they love to be held in high esteem. They forfeited their inheritance of heaven and the praise of God for the praise of men. We've already learned this. Matthew has taught us about that's what their hearts are. are, That's the idol of their heart. I just want to be held in a certain esteem, a certain view from my fellow man. And if I have that, that's what my heart wants. And if I have it, well, then I've arrived. And they forfeited that. For the presence of God and true salvation. And so as we live in this world and we are in this very, very progressive age and it's very uh, technologically solid, we have so much information. I would say too much now. I think it went for, wow, what a blessing. I can't believe I can push a button and learn anything about any place in the world. And now it's like, what am I going to do with all these articles? They're all good. This is information. It's all useful. Which one out of the thousand that came across my computer screen today should I read? It's information overload. I think the question that we want to ask ourselves as we experience the times that we're experiencing with so much at our fingertips in an advanced society is to ask ourselves, what good does this do for me in kingdom terms? Does this teach me about the kingdom? Am I growing wise? Am I using what I know about the world to grow wise in kingdom ways? Because you can know everything in this world and know nothing about the kingdom. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. They were so wise and all of the wisdom stayed here. They were clueless to what was happening in the heavens. They were clueless to the fact that God took on flesh and was walking upon them. In fact, was right before their very eyes. They could not recognize the character of God. All of the supernatural miracles that Christ performed, they didn't get it. They explained it away. Clueless. But they can read a storm. And we need to be able to read the times. We need to be in tune with what God is doing. I mean, just recently we experienced the hurricane and the weather report was there and all the predictions about the, the, the category and how 
fast the winds would blow and how much rain people would get. And we stayed right on top of it. It was important to us, wasn't it? Am I going to get flooded out? Are my trees going to blow over? Is it coming my direction? We had our eyes on it. We were watching the times. We were watching that storm. But are our eyes on the things of heaven, the storms of heaven? Can we even recognize when judgment has visited our door? The signs of the times. We can know everything we need to know about this world and we can excel in our jobs and we can impress people with our 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 tips about the stock market and our our sports statistics. If you want to impress people, just start blurting out batting averages and touchdowns and yardage and all that stuff. And you'll have a gathering around you. And it's very useful in this world. And I'm not saying. Be uneducated. And let's go back to the the dark ages. My question is, the things that we're spending our times on, are they making us wise about the things of the kingdom? Because there are two worlds that exist as one and God is Lord over them all. But we can miss him. As we see in this text. What is God up to today? And I don't mean like in a mysterious, mystical way where I have my opinion, you have your opinion, who's doing what. But like, what has God revealed to us in his word that he is up to today? What should we expect to see? What kind of signs, what kind of change on this planet? And I know there's the wars and the room of wars and things, and we have our eyes on those. And I will just say that ever since Christ said those words, the church has been sitting on the edge of the seat thinking this is it. We're not the only ones we hear. We, we tell ourselves all the time, Lord's coming back soon. I can just feel it. Well, the church has felt that ever since Christ uttered those words. The early church was ready to just sell everything because Christ is coming back. So the times are always there. And, they, and I think they just keep growing. Now, in my mind, I think, yeah, Christ is based on my wealth of 54 years of wisdom. I have come to the conclusion that. Christ is nearer to coming now than he was when I was first born. But I don't know when he's coming for sure. He, it may be soon. But do we understand? Do we see what God is doing? So what has he said in his word at this point of redemptive history that we should be looking for? Well, in the days of the Israelites, God's plan for them in redemptive history, what to expect was that he chose the, you know Abraham and all the patriarchs I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to restore everything and I'm going to do it through you. And you have the patriarchs and then I'm going to make you a great nation. And he did. And he made a lot of people in Egypt and they they reproduced. And so now he brings them in to the the promised land. And he says, my plan for you is to be a light to the nations. You're a holy people. You're separated, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. You're unique to me by my sovereign choice and will. I am choosing you to be my people. And the idea is that people from the other nations will see how blessed it is for a people to live in covenant with God, to be surrendered to his his good, good laws And they will come and you'll be a light to the nations and they'll be enthralled. And they didn't do that. They failed in that task. And then Christ came and he establishes the new covenant. And it's a new era of redemptive history. And now it's not the temple and the tabernacle and ethnic people. Now it is the people of God and the church. And so what should we expect to see among the disciples of God today? Signs of the kingdom. But discipleship. 
We should see a people that have distinctly been called together. The world isn't asked to do this or doesn't have a desire to do this. Only the people that have the spirit of God. We have a desire to come together in obedience to Christ and exalt God, lift him up. We should expect to see the people of God in every around the globe. Exalting the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other name. We should also expect to see the people of God spending their time and energy and learning about God and studying the infallible and errant word of God. We should expect to see this happening in our times. And we should expect to see people sharing the good news with others. Because that's the era of redemptive history. That's our place. And just like in the Old Testament, say under Joshua or even under David, if you were a little boy and you grew up in those days, it's a good chance you were expected to learn how to use a sword because you had enemies to fight. That's just was your place in redemptive history. And now we have spiritual enemies to fight. And now there are there are lost that need to hear the gospel. And there are your fellow saints that need to be encouraged and strengthened along the way and the walk and their pilgrimage. These are the kind of things that we should expect the people of God to be doing. Are we sensitive to the things? Are we more sensitive and more in tune to what's happening in this world and happening in Hollywood and in Washington than we are with what's happening in redemptive history? What do we know the most about? What do we think we know about the kingdom of God? What are we invested in? Are we prepared? Because as Jesus prepared his disciples for his death, that's what's taking place here. He is preparing us for his second coming, his triumphant coming. And we need to be in tune with what's happening. We need to be in tune with our own hearts and guard them. So that we are reveling in the word of God, marveling, astounded at his glory, longing for him to transform our lives because he can be missed. So a kingdom perspective, in order to have a kingdom perspective, we have to keep the kingdom in perspective. I know it's redundant, but in order to have a kingdom perspective, we have to keep the kingdom. We have to be mindful of these things. Put our time and our energy and our thought and our efforts behind them. Then we move on in our passage to another teaching kind of on bread. Verses 5 through 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this passage, but before we talk about the teaching aspect, um, I just want to point out the fact you know, that Matthew's teachings right now have been really intense. I mean, Jesus is always being confronted. There's, there's, there's like tension. 
People are really resisting the kingdom of God. And then there's the, the times where people are embracing it. But it's kind of been tense lately with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this little snippet uh, just lightens my heart. As I picture myself among them. Here are the disciples. And they're really trying to have a kingdom mindset. And they're, once again, they're brought away. You know, Jesus had a habit of taking people. They just follow him anywhere because he's such a great teacher and give, he gives free food. And he follows, so he has a habit of having the people out there. And then, lo and behold, it's already happened twice. Ah, uh, we're hungry. This is a great seminar, but we're hungry. And there's nobody that has any food. And so the disciples, um, Jesus says a statement about beware of the leaven and the bread. And I can just see them looking at each other like, do you understand what he's talking about? Not really. So they huddle up. What is he talking about? Leaven and bread. I didn't bring any bread. Did you bring any bread? I didn't bring any bread. We blew it twice. He's trying to teach us. When we have seminars, bring the bread so you don't have to do these miracles. I think that's probably what he's trying to teach us. Shame on us in Jesus' life. The Twelve Stooges. Twelve Stooges. That's not it at all. But if you see the struggle, you know, Jesus goes high and they go low. Jesus goes low and they'll go high. Jesus speaks spiritually and they take it literally. Jesus speaks literally and they take it spiritually. It's all a part of discipleship. Join the club. We're learning, right? We're learning. And that's how they are. But what's the main teaching? Of course, it has to do with false teaching. And we, we, we know that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are brilliant teachers and rabbis. And they know the Bible, but only for manipulative evil purposes. They are instruments of Satan. And he gave us the parable about how the kingdom works. And it grows according to the soils. And like leaven, it starts out small, but it just permeates things. And then he says, you know, false teaching works like that too. And the idea is you, if you let a little bit get in, it's just going to slowly permeate. Of course, it has permeated and you have the blind leading the blind. But he's trying to he's trying to prepare them to take the reins, so to speak, in his departure when he dies. They are to take over this mission and be the leaders of it. So he's got to teach them, hey, along with this kingdom, there's a lot of false teaching and people will take my word and they'll pervert it. And that's what the Sadducees and Pharisees are doing. Now, sadly, along the years of our our uh, our fellowship, we have had people that have followed false teaching. We have had people that have gotten caught up in it. This happens today. And as widely dispersed as the truth of God is, I mean, you can get a Bible in any shape and form these days. You can get we have access to any article, any theologian. I mean, we are just immersed in truth. And yet still Satan finds his way in there and he kind of gives us the sinful things that our heart wants and he takes us right on off. And so we need to be beware of these things and even guard our own hearts. If the disciples can blow it, we can blow it. So we want to make sure before we draw quick conclusions that we maybe study a little bit longer, read a little bit more, pray a little bit longer, bring the community into it, ask some more questions about how to understand a certain passage or what's happening. So that we don't fall into this. We want to keep this kingdom perspective and be in tune with it. And then lastly, 
Never say never in the kingdom. You've heard that expression before. Never say never. There is some wisdom in that. But in chronologically, in verses 13 through 20, and that I'll preach on that next time. By the way, this chapter is very rich. John MacArthur preached 13 sermons on this one chapter. And I'm trying to do it in two. So I'm covering a lot of ground. So next time we'll look at Peter's great confession and we'll look about what did Jesus mean when he says, I'm going to, you're, you're a rock and I'm going to build the church on you. Is the church built on St. Peter? What is it built on? We're going to find out about that. But for now, after he made this great confession, this is what happens. Let's look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There's the theme of the whole chapter. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Who forever would save whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We're talking about a kingdom perspective. And we see in this passage that it's not always as easy as we'd like it to be. Because the flesh can quickly get in the way of our thinking. Even as we strive to press in and to know God and understand God, the flesh can just pop up out of nowhere. How does that happen? Where does it come? The flesh gets in the way. Sam touched on the wisdom found in Proverbs last time he spoke. And Proverbs 14.12 teaches us this. And this is a, a, comes from the uh, perspective of a father just teaching his son's wisdom. 14.12 says the NIV, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. In my version, ESV says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that's God's way of putting a caution label on our minds. There's a caution sticker. Beware, brain. Beware, mind, how you think, because there's something in you and there's going to be times throughout your life where you're going to say to yourself, this has got to be the way. This has got to be right. It feels right. It seems right. It's logically, it's reasonably. This is the way I ought to go. And that may not only be the way that just knocked you off the path, but may have been the very decision that puts you on the path to destruction and death. And what makes it so dangerous is you're headed to hell and you are determined that you're right and you are on the right path. 
Proverbs, God's grace to us, he he, he stamps uh, tattoos our our minds. Be careful about the conclusions you draw and the way you think. Well, how did we get in this condition? Why do we have to be so careful because we're messed up? Because of our sin nature at the fall. We welcomed evil in. Adam as a representative of all mankind. And we are born with an evil nature. In other words, our compass is off. We're born that way. And just like the GPS that will annoy you to no end. Recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. Go this way, go this way. And take you out of the way. Our hearts, our minds, our, our, our rationale does the same thing. It's, it's off kilter. So we have to be really extra careful and not just assume, well, I got it down and I'm going to come up with the right. I've learned to feel my way through life. I've learned to think my way through life. I've learned to discern my way through life. And it's just saying, uh, it's not that easy. It's a warning label slapped onto our minds because of our sinful nature, because we bring more into our brains and we realize. And the problem is this. Our hearts are self-serving. They were created to serve God and to love God more than anything else. And unfortunately, in our sin nature, we love ourselves more than anything else. And we want to serve ourselves. And so we spend our days, like it or not, realize it or not, most of what we do, even as believers, is we're trying to figure out how we can make ourselves happy, how we can serve ourselves, how we can give our hearts the things that they are asking us to give them. And you have that little voice in your head. There's a voice who speaks to you the most but you. There's probably a voice you're speaking to yourself right now as I'm speaking to you. You're talking to yourself. And most of the things that we say to ourselves, we're, we're, we're trying to cheer ourselves up because we want to be happy. We don't want to be so sad. And we're trying to tell ourselves, listen, this is what you need to fix your little predicament. You need a relationship. You need more money. You need this job. You need to go hit this person in the head with this hammer because they made you sad. And it will make you feel so much better if you just get revenge. You need to gossip about this person. It will feel so good. And our, our minds, and they're not always telling us bad things. The Spirit of God also gives us the, the right things to think and to say. But our nature is self-serving. It's self-centered. It's trying to set itself up to be comfortable. To feel love, to feel safe, but it doesn't draw the right conclusions all the time. And so we need what? Infallible truth. God's word. Every thought we have should be filtered by God's worth because it doesn't fail. We fail. We get ourselves into trouble and we don't even realize where did that come from? Hello? You, you just had dumb thoughts. That's where it came from. You made unwise decisions. Just didn't happen overnight. How many times have you counseled somebody? Somebody came. I need some advice. Here's the mess I'm in. Yeah, you were in a mess. And the mess started back here with compromise. You thought this was right. You went. You took your little heart and walked it over here. And you got into this. And now look where you are today. It felt right. We even sing songs about how can it be so wrong when it feels so right? Oh, but my heart. Oh, this is what I need. I'm convincing myself. I know this is what I need. It doesn't. I know God says, don't do it, but. Got that caution label. Caution label. 
Be careful how you think. Blaise Pascal, a brilliant French uh, mathematician, and on top of that, a philosopher, and on top of that, a brilliant theologian. The 1700s says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Because the heart is doing what it thinks is best for it. So I'm, I'm studying this. Something about this two by two spot up here on the stage that like makes you emotional. Anyway, I'm studying this passage. And then I read on in the news about. Uh, a nine-year-old boy that killed himself. Nine years old, he killed himself. And what happened is he, he came out as gay. And he decided, I'm coming out of the closet. Nine years old. And in doing so, some of his buddies decided in their hearts, the right thing to do to make my heart happy is to bully him. And to belittle him. And to mock him and make fun of him and pick on him. And so that's the direction that their hearts went in their reasoning. And the direction that his mind went was, I'm not worth anything. This is too painful for my soul. And the best thing I can do for my soul is to kill myself. Nine years old, came to that conclusion on his own. That's the path of destruction. Look at the different ways. It was, it's still self-serving. Some things you don't get to do over. We have to be careful. Because we're talking to ourselves all the time, but we are not always giving ourselves wise advice. Our heart wants what it wants. It wants to take ourselves to that happy place. And I just want to tell you that the only way to that happy place is through the person of Jesus Christ. And through obedience to his word. And so Jesus goes on to say, as we wind it down, Peter, disciples, let me just tell you how the kingdom works. Your heart, there's going to be times when your heart wants to run away from the hard things. And guess what? It's the, the hard things are the very thing that you need. There's going to be time when you want to preserve your life. But the way you get life is by giving it. Things don't always work as they seem. They don't always work as we think they should logically or reasonably come out. And we need that kingdom perspective in order to get what we really long for. That shalom in our heart. And Christ promises, though we live in this fallen, cursed, miserable world, we can actually experience true love and peace in it. And joy. Though it fall apart around us when Christ is the center of our heart. But it's only in Jesus and sometimes making these kind of sacrifices that he talks about. 
are the very thing that we need in our lives. And we might be pampering ourselves too much in our Christian lives. We may be out of sync with the kingdom perspective and our lives don't even look like what a disciple's life should look like. We're not spending time in God's word. We're not thinking about how we can lift him up. We're not thinking about our lost workmates and neighbors. Just thinking about this. And sometimes we've got to do the hard things and make the sacrifices. And Jesus explains those. But I want to close with this in light of that. Do you see what Peter did? Now, Peter, usually he's impulsive and he's, he's kind of the spokesperson of the group. But this time he actually, instead of just blurting out, he takes Jesus by the side and he says, Jesus. I have a word with you in private, Jesus. This will never, ever happen. You're not going to die. Now, notice, first of all, the selective hearing. Jesus said, I'm going to die and rise again on the third day. They, they never seem to hear that part. That's why they weren't at the tomb. The selective hearing what you're going to die happened in the upper room. We sell we celebrate during our Easter time. Monday, Thursday happened in the upper room. He talks about the resurrection. They only hear the death. You're going to die. And he says, Jesus, that's not going to happen. That's never going to happen. So his, his flesh gets in the way and he starts thinking to himself. I'm just imagining, man, you're Jesus. You're Jesus. You, you the, the sick come to you and you make them well. And, and those that are demon possessed and absolutely controlled by demons and nobody can do anything with them. You just say a word and they leave. They flee. They hightail it like cowards. Man, you're Jesus. And yeah, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they can read the weather. But you tell the weather what to do. You're Jesus. This isn't going to happen. Every time they try to checkmate you, you checkmate them. And you're trying to tell me that they're going to take you down. That's not going to happen. And all that that sounds so good and inspiring was from the flesh because that was not the plan. So I just leave you with this. Have you ever kind of taken Jesus to the side and say, "Uh oh, that's not going to happen. You're not getting that out of me. I'm not making that sacrifice. That can't be true. Let me uh, tell you what's really going to happen or how it really is, because I just feel it and I know it. Discern it. It just seems right based on my calculations and my extrapolations. This is what's going to happen. Maybe God's calling us to something and we're saying, "Uh uh-uh, you're wrong. And it's the very thing we need to experience the joy of fellowshipping with Christ that we have yet to experience. It's the very thing we need to take us to that next level of pressing in. And being useful, being the bond slave, the bond servant of Christ. Is there an area of our lives that we are taking Jesus to the side and rebuking him over because he's calling us to something? As you speak to your heart, let the spirit of God get in there and submit. I think a wise thing to do is to say, you know, God, here's my thoughts and here's my feelings. And I'm strong about this. But what do you have to say? You get the final word. You make the final call. Because I want to have a mind that's set on the things of God. A kingdom perspective keeps the kingdom in perspective. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.